Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And as we get into your word now, um, just pray that this would be a time where the glory of Jesus Christ would truly explode in a dynamic way out of your word and into our mind and sink deep into our hearts and be transformative. We trust that your word will work as you command it and will do the things you intend it to do. And we ask for willing, open, humbled minds and hearts to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now the comfort and peace and joy, like those are words that we talk about around Christmas time because those are words that are expressed to us what it means for Jesus to be born, that he has brought to this world finally peace with God and joy in God through Christ and the comforts of eternal life. And, and so the comfort and the peace and the joy that comes with this season, we know, is based on the hope that the birth of our Savior will do something that is drastically needed by humanity, and that need is salvation. So the birth of Jesus offers us that hope, free of cost, free of cost, requiring no work, no goodness on our part. That is the joyful blessing of the gospel, that it costs us nothing to receive. However, there is a cost associated with this gift. And what it costs us, after we've freely received this gift, it costs is to live our lives in the same way Jesus lived his. To pick up our cross, as he tells us. To pick up our cross and follow him. That's the cost, to follow him. Now, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, that cost feels heavy and burdensome at times because that picking up your cross is a heavy thing to do. Following Jesus can be an arduous, difficult, painful, hard thing to do. But as I was quickly reminded by a friend this week, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen to this. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It might be hard to follow Jesus, to carry your cross every day. But do you realize that he already carried the cross? When Jesus was carrying that cross and they grabbed, uh, oh, now I forget his name. Uh-oh. Uh, the guy that helped, Simon? <laughs> The only name that will go through my head was Joseph. And I'm like, I know that ain't it. <laughs> I've read Joseph's name like 30 times this week. Okay. Uh, Simon, uh, help Jesus carry that cross. See, this is why we do this together, everybody. Um, Jesus had help. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus needed help to save us. That's not at all. He's the Savior, 100%. But it's, it's an example for us. That we need help carrying our cross. And Jesus is like, that's, that's why I already did it. 
so that when you carry yours, you can go, oh, this is heavy. And Jesus goes, yeah, but my burden is light. Let me carry it for you. Come to me. I will take that cross for you. So it cost us to follow Jesus. But compared to what Jesus went through, our path has already been paved. He went through the arduous, difficult, painful, challenging work of paving the path. And now we simply walk it. And with that comes a life that is filled and should be filled with comfort. I'm not talking about earthly comforts. I'm talking about the comfort of assurance and peace and joy. So it it does cost us to pick up our cross and follow him. And one of the most profound markers of the life of Christ in doing what he did was his humility, which was required to do so. A quality that he shares with us that enables us to endure the difficulties that we know will follow us if we follow him. And we need that humility. And that humility is first expressed at the appearing of our Savior, the birth of Jesus a sign of more humility to come. So in Matthew 1.21, as Noah had just read for us, the angel says to Joseph about Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now this verse makes plain what we all know, that the purpose of Jesus' appearing in the flesh was to save us from our sins. Now for this to happen, the Son of God must have agreed with the Father on this plan for him to leave his eternal station in the perfect presence of his Father. And for that to happen required one particular characteristic, among many other characteristics, but one in particular that enabled him to decide and choose, according to his own will, to endure a life on this earth in human flesh. And that characteristic is humility. We could think about Jesus and say, if there's anyone who doesn't need to be humble, it's Jesus. Anything that I would say, could say about myself that would make me look great. If I, could, if I said, I'm the best at this, or I'm the greatest at that, or I'm the most this, or the whatever that, you would say, you wouldn't look at me and say, well, he's being honest. He really is the greatest at that. You would go, he's kind of arrogant, not very humble. Well, what could Jesus say about himself? I am the greatest, period. Most glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing, king of the universe, creator of all things. I know everything. And that wouldn't be arrogant. That would be true. Yet, with all of the knowledge and all of the power and all of the everything, total sovereignty and supremacy, he chooses humility. Why? For you. And because it's for you, he glorifies his Father. Unlike Christ, we are sinners. So our perspective on humility contains our willingness to admit when we are wrong, right? So if we say that we're wrong, we'd say, well, that's humble to admit that you're wrong. And, and even with humility, we can endure shame and consequences of our sin in brokenness and repentance with a contrite heart. That is one application of humility for us as people, as humans, as sinners. Another application is in Philippians 2, 3. 
where we're going to spend the rest of our time in Philippians 2, where Paul says that humility is required to count others more significant than yourselves. There are many other ways we can apply humility in our lives, but without Christ and his own humility, this would not be possible for us. Now, I bring up humility in us because our versions of humility in this Christian life are applied in so many different ways and can be used for so many wonderfully glorious activities that honor God. And that isn't possible for us to do unless Christ himself in his humility is available to us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ in us. So by the Holy Spirit, we have the humility of Christ in us and we can apply that humility in a variety of situations and in a variety of different ways. But that is only possible because of the perfect humility of Christ that he perfected and has installed within us for use in this life. And the perfect humility of Christ is most profoundly revealed, if not in Isaiah 53, then in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Now, contextually, in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, really earlier, uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 5, is, is Paul encouraging believers to be humble. And then he teaches us that our humility is a product of having the mind of Christ. He says at the end, in, in Philippians 2, 5, have this mind, so he had just told us to be humble. And he says, have this mind. What is this mind? This mind of humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in this text, that verse 5 is the end of the personal application for us because from there, Paul continues to argue for the kind of humility that is actively alive in us by showing us the humility of Christ himself. And that humility becomes effectual at the birth of Jesus. So Paul continues writing about humility and of the humility of Jesus in Philippians 2, 6, and he says, Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning Jesus was willing to release himself from the exalted position and presence of perfect joy and pleasure with his Father that he had experienced from eternity past. And thus begins Paul's explanation of Jesus' humility, that he was willing to remove himself from his divine place in his Father's presence in order to humble himself into humanity for eternity. That is the greatest expression of humility that the earth or the world or anybody had ever seen at the moment. That God himself, eternal God himself, who bears no flesh, who is spirit, as Jesus says in John 4. This very God decides to enter humanity, not for 33 years, but for eternity. To save for himself a people that he could call his own. To go capture a bride. Men, what would you do for your wife? What would you sacrifice for your wife? What humble things would you endure? What humilities would you risk? How would you, and, and, and to what extent, would you allow yourself to be humbled 
to capture, to have, to sacrifice for, and to receive for eternity a wife that you love. I know you love your kids. You have to. You're legally commanded to. <laughs> you have no choice. You have to take care of those things, right? <laughs> they need food, you got to feed them. But your wife, wives, your husband, right? Wives, how do you feel about your husband? Husbands, how do you feel about your wives? These were choices. You chose that person. It's a picture of how Christ chose us. And you sacrificed a lot to have that wife, men. You sacrificed all the other women in the universe for her. When you said yes to her, you said no to everybody else. You said no to a lifetime of singleness. You said no to absolute autonomous freedom. You said yes to a union where you join with another person and do everything together. You said yes to a lifetime of sacrifice, to a lifetime of humbling yourself in the relationship with your spouse so that they could be exalted. That's what Christ did for us. And we get to experience that in our marriage, but the marriage is a small picture of the reality of what Christ did. And he took eternity from himself to become humanity on this earth, and not only humanity, that's, that's the beginning of the humility because it gets harder, as we'll see in this text. <clears throat> and Paul goes on in verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men. Nothing could be a greater expression of humility than for the creator himself to become like his own creation. And, and so to do is the angel promised Mary and Joseph to save his people from their sins. The cost that Jesus was willing to endure is genuinely beyond human experience. We can't do what he did. There is no sacrifice that can compare to the Son of God willingly removing himself from his eternal abode so to enter the likeness of humanity knowing that what it will cost him. He knew what it was going to cost him and he did it anyways. And we know what it cost him. Verse 8 and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verses 6, 7, and 8 just are steps into humility. Verse 6, he counted equality with God a thing not to be grasped. He humbles himself and says, though I am God, I will not count that thing a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, made himself nothing. Verse 7, took the form of a servant. That's more humility. Every word is a step of, toward greater humility. Really, it's a step into death. Every step of humility down from his greatness is a step closer to the greatest humility, which is death. Being born in the likeness of men, another step down in humility. And being found in human form, humility. He humbled that's humility, humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to who? His father, he's God. And he humbled himself into obedience. He said, I will take the role of obedient servant. To what point? Another step of humility to the point of death. Another even deeper step of humility, death on a cross. The humility of Jesus is not just 
that he left his eternal place with his father to become a human, but that he was willing to do so with the understanding that this included an exceptionally arduous life of pain and suffering amounting in his greatest suffering on the cross, which he, where he bore the weight of eternal suffering that would have taken us an eternity to bear, only took him six hours on a cross. And that's why our sacrifice, our Savior, needed to be God himself. And on that cross, he suffered the heartache of his father's unleashed and unrestricted wrath and anger for our sins. Now that required such humility because if there is anyone who has the right to declare injustice... It was Jesus on the cross. Yet, as Paul argues for us to do, Jesus does in Philippians 2, 3. Jesus, in humility, counted others more significant than himself. That's why Paul tells us to do it. And then that's why Paul goes in verses 6 through 11 to explain, Christ already did it. You're just walking in his path. And he proved it on the cross. Now, that humility was first exposed at his birth. In verse 7, Paul said, he made himself nothing. Does that mean that being a human being is worthless? That it means nothing to be human? That's not what Paul's saying. It means that compared to who Jesus truly is, for him to bear human flesh, not only for 33 years, but for eternity, requires that he have a mind of humility where he is willing to disregard his own life and count his life as nothing, though it is worth everything. He is willing to count it as nothing, so that in becoming nothing, we might become something, something valuable to God, redeemed children of his choosing for his glory and our joyful satisfaction in him, so that he would be glorified. Now, Jesus, knowing the fullness of his value, of his unspeakable grandeur and supremacy and greatness and glory, put it all aside so to become something much less, to become human. And his birth is God's, this is an important word, listen, his birth is God's confirmation. His birth is God's confirmation that the Son of God has begun his journey to the cross where he would be humbled beyond compare, marked by the world as worthless and meaningless, and so they killed him. And all that humility led to his resurrection, which again was God's, important word, confirmation. His resurrection is God's confirmation that the Son had completed his humility. And what does God do when the Son completes his humility? Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the birth of Christ, we get God's confirmation that the Son of God has chosen the path of humility to save us from our sins. And in the completion of his task, he is resurrected as another confirmation that his humility is finished. And he is now being exalted. And in his exaltation, yet again, we get another confirmation from God. 
which is God regenerating our hearts by his spirit and placing within us that same Christ likeness of humility. That we get to expose the nature of Christ daily by being like him in humility. Don't ever, ever, ever think that you are being like Christ if you are not being humble. It is one of the most profound expressions of the nature of Christ was his humility because it is so counterintuitive to the reality of his true nature because no one, no one can look at Christ for who he truly is and think that man ought to be more humble. He hung on a cross and was mocked And people said, he can't even take himself down from the cross. You know how hard that would be for me if I were him? Because I'm a sinner, so I I wouldn't do it well. But to not be like, oh yeah? And then just make the cross explode, reveal myself in my truest, fullest glory, call down legions of angels, turn everybody into insects, and be like, I'm king, you're an insect, I can do whatever I want with you, I'm God of the universe. Just to feel justified for that moment. But Jesus endured the humility, the humiliation of being told he's not who he knows he is. And and, and you know that feeling when somebody has said something about you and you know it's not true. You hear whispers, oh, oh, this person said that you're this, this, or that. And you're like, that's not true. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. That's not who I am. And you feel feel this injustice rise up in you and you want to do something about it. Well, think about this. Whatever was said about you, whatever injustice is done to you is really close to the truth. It might not be true, but it's a lot closer to the truth than what anybody ever says untrue about Jesus. The injustice that was done to Christ is greater than any injustice that will ever be done in the world to any human ever. You have never felt injustice the way Christ did. And yet he, he endured it without sin. How? How does he do that? How does he do that? How does he let people for 30 Three years, really mainly. I mean, because Jesus was 12. He was teaching in the temple and people were blown away by him. At that point, they're like, oh, what a nice little chap we've got here. What a good little kid. He's so smart. He's going to be something great one day. You know, they could have kind of wrote him off as, a, you know, maybe a savant, just a really smart kid or something. Mary knew. She cherished these things in her heart. She knew who he was at birth. She didn't quite understand the whole picture. She certainly didn't understand the whole picture. Not back then. Eventually she did, but really for about three years of Jesus' life was just a constant bombardment of you are not who you say you are. And he's like, I'll prove it. Heals sick people, raises the dead, casts out demons, performs miracle after miracle, declares the truth, preaches, argues. People argue with him. He destroys their arguments. No one has anything to say. Back to Jesus when he's done discussing the truth with them. He is insurmountable. People cannot handle 
him. And yet they mock him and ridicule him. And then they bring him to trial and they declare, even though Pilate says, there's nothing wrong with this guy. I find no guilt in him. And they're like, kill him anyways. He says he's the king of the Jews. How ironic. And they post king of the Jews on the cross above his head to mock him. This is what we're accusing him of, claiming to be king of the Jews. And Jesus dies on a cross with a label above his head that rightly and perfectly declares what is true. Despite the false accusations being thrown in his face as he hangs on that cross, as he walks to Golgotha, to the place of skulls, and carries that cross with him, as he's beaten and whipped and destroyed and ridiculed and lied to, and, 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 and everybody hates Jesus, so much so that anyone associated with Jesus is going to die because of him. And everyone's, oh, you're king of the Jews, huh? Look at you now, hanging on a cross, dying with this label as a mockery king of the Jews. And he dies as really, truly, the king of the Jews. What a great, what a great gift from God that what people meant as mockery, God put as a label above his son, who is the king. As he dies on a cross, for you and for me. And how, what does it take for this man to endure so many years of ridicule and accusations and false statements and unjust declarations and an unjust trial and a murder that is not fair? He had done nothing wrong. What does it take to endure that? It takes humility. A humility that you and I have never known. But it is fully ours in Christ. James 4.10 Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what Christ did. That's why James tells us that. Because that's what Jesus did. He humbled himself before God, and God exalted him. And Jesus endured the humility all the way to the end. He could have stopped sooner. He could have jumped off the cross and called down angels and done whatever he wanted. He, he could have been being beaten. He could have been on trial. He could have, he could have simply looked out upon all the Jews who were crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he could have been like, No! And changed their minds instantly. And they could have fallen on their faces and looked at him and, and declared, you are the son of God, we worship you. He could have done that. He chose not to. Because our salvation required his death. And it required his humility. And now he has given it to us. So the birth of Christ, though gloriously beautiful, is just the beginning of a life of humble sufferings that lead to exaltation when humility is complete. And we too must bear a lifetime of humility like Christ so that like Christ we too can be exalted with him in righteousness. So as much as Christmas may feel like a time of comfortable joy where we cherish this you know, expression of God's love revealed to us in the birth of our Savior when Jesus appeared, it really was 
actually a marking of the beginning of a life of pain and suffering, far from the word comfortable. I mean, when I think of Christmas, I mean, once Halloween's over, Christmas begins, right? And so, in our house it is. So, we play Christmas music November 1st. Sometimes the tree goes up the first week of November. This year we waited a little bit. It's okay. We're growing. So, uh, when I think of Christmas, I think of a Christmas tree. I think of Andy Williams' red Christmas album and the green one, of course. If you haven't listened to those, you have missed out on an entire lifetime of pure joy. And you need to listen to it today. Okay, Andy Williams' Christmas music, okay, Christmas album. Go check it out. I'm serious. I'm putting in a plug. He's not a Christian, just saying. Good music. Anyways, that's what I think about. Because I grew up listening to the Andy Williams, and, and, and there's a song that he does away in the manger, and we had it on vinyl, right? We had a record player, and there were certain parts of the record that skipped every time. So every time I hear the song, Away in the Manger, what I hear is, Away, 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 away. That's how I hear the song, Away in the Manger. And then I kick it, and it goes, Away in the... And you're like, oh, okay, now I feel good. So... I think of Christmas music, I think of Andy Williams, I think of record players, I think of a Christmas tree, I think about all the presents, I think about the gifts, I think about being around family, I think about eating a lot of cheese, I think about all the snacks that I love, I think about wearing pajamas and sitting on the couch, and all just the, the, the comfort of Christmas. And, and is there anything wrong with loving that? Not at all. But that is not genuine comfort. Now I can enjoy that in the comfort of Christ. But the world loves that too. That's not special. What makes that, those comforts and those joys in my life special is because I can enjoy them knowing who I am in Jesus Christ knowing that I get this peace and comfort and joy of all these pleasantries of Christmas time, not because I deserve them, but because Christ paid for them. And that's what makes Christmas really meaningful. And so it's not comfortable to follow Christ. It's, it's why I like Christmas so much. It's comfortable. It's like, I, just, I wish there's no stress, no problems at, at Christmas time so we could just enjoy it as it is. But the reality is life's just not that simple, and it's not that easy. It's a lot harder than that. Life isn't comfortable. So as much as we like to think, well, this is a time where we get to enjoy that peace and comfort, the Christian life is not that. It is a life where we endure so much uncomfortability in the humility of Christ, just like Jesus did. And we, too, will share with him in the eternal, pleasurable joys of endless comfort and satisfaction because of what he's done. And we look forward to that hope. So as much as the appearing of our Savior feels like, ah, finally he's here to bring peace and comfort, it is just as biblical to think of his appearing at his birth as, okay, it's begun, here we go, let's go. Time to die to self, endure the suffering, practice joy and hardship just like Jesus so that we can spend eternity in his incomparable comfort and peace. So though the Christian life is hard and it is not always comfortable and it is not always feel like peace, we are promised those things. What is unique about our experience in Christ versus Jesus' experience as Christ 
is that he endured, endured certain things so that we don't have to. The peace and comfort that is promised to us in eternity is not something that we have known yet, but at the same time, the absolute assurance of our future blessing is a blessing within itself today. There is peace and comfort as a blessing today because we know that regardless of the path our life takes, whether it's easy or hard at times, we are guaranteed the eternal blessings of his glory expressed to us in perfect peace, perfect joy, and perfect comfort. There are endless pleasures and joys and blessings we receive in this life, but only in humility can we truly understand the purpose of our lives in the light of the purpose of his life and his birth. Just as he was born into humility, in humility we must be reborn. We must humbly walk his path and humbly die with him to sin so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift, your son, Jesus Christ, who is so, so humble. He knows the humility we, we really don't quite fathom because our sinful flesh deters us from truly experiencing the fullness of his humility. Yet the benefit of his full humility is ours. And so we ask that we would experience it, that we could contain it and have it and hold it and use it and live it and live this life in humility like Christ. Help us to pursue him, to enjoy him, and then therefore be like him and in him so we could express the glory of your son, Father, in the humility that you give us. And we thank you that this path of humility began at the birth of our Savior, which we celebrate today. We thank you for him. What a beautiful gift. In Jesus' name, amen.